below. In a dark, broken-down landscape of rubble, cowering wretches huddle amid the discarded ruins of their folly. You are now in cinema limbo, a final refuge for movies seeking a new life, and I am Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and acrobat. Tonight's feature is the 1996 sci-fi action-adventure Escape from L.A., and my guest is science man and fellow film lover Ed Bloomer. You join us in the parlour of my house in darkest suburbia sheer. Hello. Hello there. So, um, we watched Escape from L.A., the uh, 1996 sequel to Escape from New York. Yeah. Had you seen it before? I had. I, I can't remember when. Um, not when it was in the cinema, but at some point. I think I, I, think I got it... Um, I think I got from the sort of the corner shop uh, video rental place. <laughs> we, I grew up in a small village, so there was just one shop, and it had a sort of back wall full of videos that, that's the only thing I can remember or the only thing I can think that might be where I got it from it does seem to be a bit of a mainstay of the BBC One late night Sunday movie it has turned up a number of times at the sort of 11.30 on a Sunday night maybe, maybe that was it, maybe um, I, for, I first heard about it just before I first saw Escape from New York the original film um, which was had a sort of a tie-in screening on BBC One around the time that LA came out, and um, like every fifteen-year-old boy who saw Escape from New York, it immediately became my favourite film. Okay, it's, yeah. it's really great, and um, I was very excited to see Escape from LA. Eventually, I did a year later after I finished my GCSEs. I went left school early at the end of the year. Um, Specifically to see Escape from LA. <laughs> well, because I, fin- I finished my GCSE, so they sent us home early. All right, okay. We didn't have to do the last two weeks of term. And um, my parents were going out to some sort of function that evening, and to sort of congratulate me on finishing my exams. They got me in, like a nice meal, and rented a couple of videos for me. And they were Aliens, which I'd never seen before, and didn't like, and still don't like very much. Wow, okay. Um, and Escape from LA, which I also wasn't that keen on. That's a, that's a good combo. I, you, your parents should be congratulated. That's a good combo. They were my request. Oh, right, okay. Oh, I thought they maybe just guessed. I was, I was uh, going to say that, was a good, that would be a good guess for a, a 15, 16-year-old boy. That's, that's a good night in. Um, but that's why I, I saw it on cheap on video a couple of years later and bought it. And it kind of thought, oh, well, it's not that bad. The ending in particular had annoyed me. Okay. But um, seeing it again sort of a number of times over the years, I've really come to appreciate it. And watching it again to um, uh, make notes for this podcast, I really enjoyed it. Okay. So you're saying? Are you saying it's? Are you saying it's underappreciated? I'm saying it's underappreciated. Um, it was a flop when it came out. Right, okay, yeah. It was John Carpenter's most expensive movie. It was $50 million. $50 million? $50 million, and it's... Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it cost as much as GoldenEye did, which came out less than a year earlier. Right, okay. So think in, in contrast, the, contrast the two together of 
which one looks the more expensive and remember that they cost the same amount. Okay, yeah. I can see I can see some places where things might happen that would be expensive, but also look rubbish. Yeah. Like, I think when they do this stuff in the stadium, I can imagine that being a very expensive shoot. Yes. In terms of having the stadium, you have a lot of extras there. It also still looks empty and rubbish. And it's night, and they've had to dress the whole thing. Yeah. Night shoots are always more expensive because they're always more logistically complicated. And everyone gets extra money because unless you just sneak in, maybe they just just sneak in with a bunch of people. I, I doubt you can pull that off with a bunch of two hundred people. Yeah, well, you know, they would all have fake guns. You wouldn't mess with them. (laughs) You just assume that they were. Something I was reading about it is all the gunfire is an optical effect. Yeah, I think, or all of it. Apparently, yeah. I mean, I think you can see that when they're having the sort of. The, big the, the, the crowd and they all start firing into there. Yeah, I, I thought. Yeah, I thought. I mean, I thought that was an optical effect. I'd but it's not. They're, they're not flashes coming out of the barrel. They are just added on. They added that added on images. Photo, Photoshop, or whatever yeah, was the, um, happening at the time. The very early digital effects. Yeah, they don't no. have pro tools. They just have tools. No. What did you think of the helicopter? Um, the CGI helicopter. Astonishing! It's, it's, <laughs> it's really impressive. It's it almost looks like real plane mobile. It's I, well, yeah. I was I, I did think a lot about the the, the CG effects um, because because Independence Day is coming out at the same time. Yeah, it came out about a month earlier. So that is more impressive. Independence Day, I, I believe, holds the record for the largest model effects shoot of all time. A lot of what you think might be CGI is actually model effects. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But I think, but sorry, I'm just I'm just comparing it in terms of yeah, yeah. stuff that was coming yeah. out at the same time, and and just I guess in terms of I, I mean it's unfair to compare it to now. We're talking twenty yeah. years later. Well, perhaps but, um, I think the Twister come out the same year. Uh, I think you might be right. And obviously, that has very extensive CGI for all the storms. And that looks, as far as I remember, very good. I can't. I, do you know? I can't remember. I can't remember Twister. I, I mean, I it's saw not, it. But I not, yeah, I saw it. I saw it at the time, and I haven't seen it since. I remember it being very exciting. But yeah. um, um, it focused on the characters. I yeah. Think. And in the case of Escape from LA, there's much more look at spectacle. Yeah. Sure. Sure. But I am. I mean, I am kind of fascinated with with CG and visual effects like that because I, I sort of you forget as soon as you adapt to what what is new and obviously they try and push the quality all the time so you just adapt to that so I'm, I'm kind of interested in the you suspending your 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 disbelief I suppose for the so okay so if we see a big I don't know what's you know popular at the moment big Marvel superhero films, right? Yeah. And they have a lot of money put into the CG, but it seems to be that they're about fifty percent CG, right? Uh, which I don't—I I mean, I don't actually mind, but but the, it's very, very poor. It's very, very good. But I do kind of think it's interesting that when I watched things twenty years ago, I didn't mind that CG. But if I look back at it now, I think, well, that—that's hopeless in terms of in terms of realism. Yeah. And I wonder if you know you're watching the original uh, King Kong. You know, are you watching something? You know, something like that. It's just interesting. I think it's interesting. Like, do, to what extent do you just adapt to 
what you know is the best that can be done at that particular time. Yeah. Uh, that's I think something that modern audiences struggle with, which is why older films that are quite visual effects heavy yeah. and are it, maybe not as maybe don't get the respect that they deserve given the craftsmanship involved. Sure, sure, sure. Oh yeah, yeah. It's not. It, yeah, no, nobody wasn't trying. Like, oh yeah, when they made yeah. That, that but, helicopter. But, but, they were, but nowadays they look antiquated. I mean, look, you watch the original King Kong with the herky jerky stop motion effects, and it looks no different from a Ray Harryhausen movie from 30 years later. Jason and the Argonauts, for example, is no one's idea of a real classic. I uh, disagree. Strongly disagree. I think it's an amazing film. I think it's brilliant. Well, I'm not saying it's not entertaining, although I, I could take it or leave. I'm just saying it's, it's not, in my opinion, a masterpiece of adventure and storytelling and that kind of thing in the same way that the original King Kong is very very straightforward sure sure okay alright but I, I strongly disagree with Jason and the Argonauts I think it's one of the best films ever I th- yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant it's brilliant but but the, the effects uh, of course you I, I think because they are so different you just your brain puts them in a different thing I don't think you look at the stop motion skeletons and Jason and the Argonauts and think that's realistic you just think that's that's that thing I think that must be the boundary then because you know, in King Kong you've got a giant monkey in Jason the Argonauts you've got skeletons but in Escape from LA it's a helicopter yeah and you know what a helicopter looks I mean obviously it's, it's a future helicopter so it looks different but you think well they could have done that for real or they could have had and actually okay. they, they do because they do have a physical prop that actors get in and out of but there's a disconnect between this should look like something that I would see in the real world and this is what we're being shown and it doesn't match. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. And the lighting was a bit off as well. Well, I think, I think all the sort of things that like the, the lighting shadowing effects um, all, all sorts of things that the material effects of the sort of uh, reflective surfaces or quasi-reflective surfaces and all the shaders and all that sort of stuff that you know you have people that that's their entire job is to uh, create new ones or to uh, you know um, put that in to again I'm, I'm just sort of thinking of something like the Avengers which is huge money huge amount of CGI oh wait do you mean the Marvel Comics Avengers of course I do <laughs> of course I do not, not, the, not, the, not the other Avengers that we've spoken about before which is nobody's idea of a classic I would agree. Ah, okay, but all right. I think it's a film that is very unfairly maligned. All right. I, okay. well, before we started this recording, you told me you hadn't listened to that podcast yet. No, no, I haven't. So I'm afraid so. Okay, so, it's, so. All right. You should because I'll it's, do that. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's. You think you make some cogent points? You think I, I could be convinced? I, do. I could convince you to watch it again with an open mind. Oh, but you could convince me to watch anything. Well, you're very, very gullible. Not the same to not <laughs> Well, anyway, all right. <laughs> Ellie, let's talk about Ellie, okay? Um, it's, it's worth going into a, a tiny bit of background. The original film, Escape from New York, released in 1981, um, John Carpenter, the director, had previously only made horror pictures, apart from one his, his film, his debut, Dark Star, which was a kind of stoner 2001 mm. Um, it was an action movie set in the future year of 1997 
crime in the US has skyrocketed and Manhattan has been walled up as a giant maximum security prison. Drop the prisoners in there, leave them to it. Air Force One crashes. New intake, Snake Plissken, a former commando, is sent in to rescue the president. Um, and he does, with a, with, a, with a few side adventures and twists along the way. That movie was a big hit, became a cult hit. Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken became a bit of a cult character. And there was a push over the next 15 years for there to be a sequel. And eventually, in the early 90s, they managed to get it together. And the key that kind of unlocked the whole idea of what to do with the sequel was when they had a giant earthquake in Los Angeles in early 1994, yeah. I think it was. And that gave them the idea of saying, well, what if, the, what if Los Angeles was split off from mainland USA and became an island? That then could become the new prison. And the whole idea flowered from that. But much of the movie is deliberately a retread of the first. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I think is a very unusual decision. Well, it's not unusual because in some ways it's, it's a sequel that is doing the first one over again, which a lot of lazy sequels do. But this one is doing it in a way that I think feels fresh and different because it's going for a completely different tone. Right, okay. The original, the original movie, I mean, the music in the original movie, the music is also by John Carpenter. Um, the, the theme music is very electronic. It's totally electronic. It's very sparse. It's very moody. It's very foreboding. Mm-hmm. The version of that theme used on the opening titles of L.A., is it's rock, it's dun, 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 dun. it's much more sort of action packed. Sure. And that I think it reflects the tone for the two for the first one is very sparse and spartan and moody and the second is much more energetic and um dynamic and driving. Okay. I mean <clears throat> I think some of the stuff that didn't work for me in the film which I think might relate to this is I, I think it's because obviously we're sitting here in London watching a film made in America mm-hmm. a foreigner essentially watching a, what is a foreign movie that sort of idea that people have of themselves I don't think it, I don't think it kind of works so much it's not a, it's not really a, it is quite self-regarding I think it's not that it's, it's not that it's just crammed full of jokes as such but there's things where you think that doesn't la- well I feel that doesn't land because I don't inherently care about LA like I, I'm not walking down these streets or I'm not I'm not in Hollywood so the jokes that they're making or the sort of the tone that they're going for doesn't mean as much to me right because you have a sort of if you don't live there you and I'm sure this is true even for Americans that live you know just simply in different states maybe the next state over there's a kind of mythic quality to LA and and even New York. Like people think because you've seen so many films there, so much stuff is from there, produces so much culture. You sort of think you know New York, even if you've never visited. Hmm. And LA to some extent as well. And I feel that Escape from LA has some bits where it sort of it, it it's like if someone a bit people probably think they, they they know London as well, but they only know one 
particular facet of it, the facet that's been sort of presented. Yes. And I, I just I just found that was tricky. And I think maybe in, in, just in terms of sounds, it, it's that idea. It's somebody who's who's thinking, oh, let's make something that is. It's probably very deliberate. Well, sure, it's not accidental, you know. Or the New York theme was like this. But let's change it up for LA. Yeah. This is what the, people get. This people know that this is what LA is like. And I think when you're viewing it from outside, you think, oh, I don't really know about that. I don't know if that's. Well, I I don't think that they changed the music to correspond with the city. I think they changed the music to correspond with the change in the tone. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, I think playing with archetypes of a city I think that works well because like in the original you have a character who's just called Cabby who is yeah. the archetypal New York taxi driver yeah and have all these sort of locations and sort of icons of New York and then here you have things that LA is known for so you have all the um, plastic surgery casualties sure things sure. like that and the sports and the idea of a mercenary agent. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, and I think loads of, loads of films do it well. It's just that every time that happened in Escape from LA, I thought, oh, God. <laughs> right, it's, it's, it's going it's it, to it war on you. Yeah, yeah, it's going to substitute good writing for. You already know this, this is shorthand for something. You well, know. well, I think that is good writing if, if you're able to just use a shorthand. To get your point across. Well, sometimes, yeah, you don't want you don't want a film that's just exposition, exposition, exposition no, all the time, no, no. or you know, characters having to just speak their true intentions all the time. So yeah, you can use it well. I just thought in Escape from LA, just every time it's like, oh, yep, it's the plastic surgeon. Yeah, okay. Well, I enjoyed the little details of the world that they put in. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, like um. Uh, um Snake at one point says, "Oh, I, every, uh, the president says that anyone who helps me gets a million dollars." And says, "Oh, I've got a million dollars in the next room. I've, oh, I've got a million greenbacks in the next room." He says, "No, no, no, bluebacks." <laughs> okay. Yeah, because, oh, yeah. So there's there's two kinds of money now, right? And okay. it's just I said, "Oh, that's more valuable." So that's a nice extra layer to it. Yeah. And okay. I, yeah. That, 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 that idea of world building, I think, works. And it's not. It's hardly Ridley Scott, but um, there's effort put into it. There, there is, but there's also loads of really. Well, the the first one I thought of when I thought, all oh, right, okay, there might be. Oh, this is oh, this is driving me insane already. So, so there's the problem in LA. The problem, right? LA is now an island. Yes. Okay, that's we're going to use that as some strange prison. Okay, so you're already having to make a big shift that that's how people are going to be treated. But okay, we've established that escape from New York, perhaps. Okay, that's how the country works. But then I like the fact that because of that disaster, the president gets sworn in for life and moves to is it Lynchburg? Moves the president to Lynchburg, Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Moves the capital, rather. And I just thought, oh my goodness, if all it takes is an earthquake for the president to just say, "Well, I'm president for life now." I mean, I guess it, I guess you're making a completely different world where people react in completely different ways, but that then leads to problems later on when you're expecting your characters to react, perhaps, or hoping they react in a somewhat sensible or somewhat uh, followable way. A, a way that the audience can connect to. Yeah, because I think if you, if you establish stuff where people behave completely contrary to how you would expect 
a lot at the start, then when characters do it halfway through, I mean, it's consistent in tone, but it means it's not that you're empathising with them, I guess, but it, it is harder to decide that you care about what they're doing because if at random points they just do things which just uh, seem seem out of context to, to everyday life, that's that's a harder character to follow, I think. I'm not saying it, I'm not saying Escape from LA is is the worst example of this. But it just, I, I, because I hadn't seen it for so long, and in the first five minutes with the big spiel of exposition, yeah. um, just that's the bit where I thought, right. all right, so after natural disaster, the president gets to be president for life and move. Riddle me this. Okay, the movie was made in 96. Okay. And the, uh, the earthquake that devastates LA takes place in the summer of 2000, and the president, who is never named, is elected in... November 2000. Yeah, okay. Now, in the real world, George W. Bush was elected that year. Right. And this movie is about a president who is a fundamentalist right-winger, elected in the year 2000, consolidates his power after a disaster devastates a major American city and uses that as justification for exporting people to an offshore island deemed not part of the United States, deemed to have committed moral crimes. Yeah. And there are people still in Guantanamo Bay who have never been charged. Okay. Incidentally. <laughs> okay, right. But it seems weird that if Hurricane Katrina comes along and New Orleans get flooded, for which Bush yeah. became very, very unpopular because he was not to do it. Because New Orleans but, is full of black people. No, no, but but just in general, his response to things or his his inability, uh, uh, fair or not, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of it, to to actually um, to get something done essentially mm. about the situation. Um, there was a real backlash against that. Yes. Um, so he didn't get to say, well, maybe if it had gone better, maybe he would have just said, well, I'm moving the capital to Texas. Well, the movie starts with. Um <laughs> some, some very entertaining wireframe graphics. Did you notice that the um, the, the the prologue, the um, the narrator of the exposition at the beginning, the sort of the uh, the catch-up part? Did you recognise the narrator's voice? No, Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, who is the only other person to return from the first movie oh. when she also narrated the prologue? Wow, that must have just been. Maybe she must have just known Halloween. No, no, okay, but... What do you mean she knows... No, no, I just mean that must have been like, I will pop down to Jamie's house. Well, yeah, because I imagine that she and John Carpenter will remain friends. Oh, I'd like to think so. Yeah. I mean, she'd done two films in a row with him before Escape from New York, because she was in The Fog as well. Oh, right, okay. Um, And I thought, oh, let's just get her, let's ask her nicely, let's do this bit of voice work. Um, just pop her in the house with a dictaphone. Yeah, get her to see some. It's like a very early podcast. It wasn't. It wouldn't have been a dictaphone. It would have been like a giant. Was it They probably had to have a custom built studio. Yeah, <laughs> it would have had to just like pour. What, 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 what I thought about it was interesting about the intro. What it made me think of is computer games nowadays. It's just info dump that action films don't really get away with too often if yeah. they're good action films these days. It seems to be nowadays you get more sort of cold starts, more sort of 
it, it is revealed in the dialogue somehow, right. which is better writing, I think. But 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 I think I think lots of computer games start with this sort of idea. You know, after your loading screen, you start playing the computer games and says, right, okay, so this country has attacked this country. You are a soldier in this. Go mm-hmm. shoot people. Where and Escape from LA is kind of that same thing. It was just about three minutes of this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's not three minutes. Is it not? No, it's more, it's more like a minute and a half at most. Okay. And there's actually some not terrible effects in there. When we see the earthquake, we see some collapsing streets. There's a big a big wave. The wave is pretty. It's okay, you know, perfect, it's, okay, yeah, it's, it's far away. So yeah, it's, I like, I like, I like the building collapsing and the the CG panes of glass cracking out of it. Mm. Thing is, that 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 would have been really difficult to do, really difficult. Yes, it would. Um, there's a lot of elements in that yeah. shot that would all have to be animated independently because yeah. I don't think at the time they would have had the software to do multiples of things. Probably, probably not. I mean, yeah, I imagine someone took a lot of work on that sort of thing. That's where the money went. That probably. <laughs> Maybe they just did it with real things, put a sort of CG scene over it, mm. and uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, the um, the basic plot of the movie this time is that the president's daughter, Utopia, good name, good, That's a name, good name for a girl, uh, has, or a boy, or anyone, <laughs> has defected from uh, his side to the side of rebels who are based in LA, led by Cuervo Jones. Yeah, and she's taken with her and. A new secret weapon. Yeah, which she, they don't explain what it is until later in the movie. Yeah, she steals it very subtly. I mean, it's on camera, but when people are looking the other yeah. way, she just takes it off. Yeah, it's just this and ultimate weapon. You just leave it on the bench somewhere. I mean, maybe that, maybe that is more realistic. Than, uh, well, I think the assumption was that, that that there would be no need to conduct security checks or anything like that. Because she, well, that's true. She's the president's daughter, but. That uh, I did like one detail that they had in again. It's another example of this sort of subtle world building they're trying, which is um, they mentioned oh, after after her sister's suicide, she withdrew into virtual reality. Thought, oh yeah, her sister committed suicide. That's an interesting little thing there. I wonder what wonder what went on there. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. And um, the fact that when she's hijacking the plane with a submachine gun, she's also wearing a huge badge that says "True Love Waits." Oh yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think, think it was just like a real poke in the eye. Yeah, I mean, there's some quite heavy-handed satire of of sort of conservative politics or mm. uh, conservative American politics, uh, I guess particularly. So, I mean, it did make me laugh. I did notice it as well. All right, well, it's, it's not that it's hard to notice, but yeah, I did. I did. It caught my eye, and I, I had a wee giggle. But uh, it's very blunt. But it, it is. is because it's so much. It has such a really giant bat that it makes it funnier. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and I, I mean, I think she's wearing a pink sort of trousers. Oh, not no, a like sort a, of power suit kind of. Yeah, like a Jackie Kennedy type thing. Mm. Mm. The, the film predicts that mini discs will remain very successful because oh, and get even smaller even and get smaller. even smaller. Very very tiny little things. The, everyone has these sort of portable gadgets, like like iPhones almost. <laughs> but so they have a little push button dial and you load them with tiny little CDs and they do everything apparently uh, yeah I mean mainly play audio when you put in a sort of well, no, it, it also plays the um, 
the virtual reality recording of the of oh, the I like that angle, where it sort of expands around Snake and he's and there's a reverse angle and he looks around and he's actually standing within yeah the, the whole event, looking and just annoyed. He's annoyed all the he time. He is annoyed all the time, but I thought that was funny. Like he, it wasn't. Oh, I know what this is. Says, why or, is this bothering or, me? Or you know, or this is new. Or this is exciting technology. Because you might have thought, well, okay, right, he's you know, he's an outlaw. He's maybe away doing his own thing. Maybe this is a new kind of gadget to show you off, mm. or a new sort of technology. But he, there's no, he, do, he doesn't exclaim any sort of surprise or, or, or even. Or even neutrally take it in his in his stride. It's just he's really annoyed by the fact that he's looking at other things. There is also a line where he he the, the thing that forces him to cooperate in the first movie he is injected with tiny little bombs in his neck yeah. that will explode after twenty four hours. Yes, um, and in this one he is given a virus. Yes, um, which he is told will kill him in eight hours. Uh, no, he gets ten, does he not? But by the time he's out of the, uh, yeah, by the time he's out and away to LA, I think he's only got about eight hours left on him. Yeah, it sort of fluctuates a little bit, but um, he's very irritated by all this, and he says, "Well, well you would be, wouldn't you?" Yeah, I mean, I would but be. him even more so because he's very, very gruff, and yeah, like, he's like he's like a, a Sergio Leone character. He speaks only when he wants to speak. He doesn't speak. He doesn't do anything unnecessarily. Yes, but that actually annoys me in a very specific way when he gets to LA, and it was kind of at the start, and he locates the missing team member, and uh, the lady shows him where he has to go next. He doesn't say thank you. No, he doesn't. That annoys me, because it's one thing to be a sort of, the kind of countercultural sort of outlaw type person. Or for people, or or if if you're doing it sort of, oh he's a complete psychopath, but he's the only chance we've got, you know he's not going to play by the rules, but you know we can force him to do this thing. That's that's another way to go, right? But if you've got someone that's just angry all the time and just rude to people, it's not like it's not like classic kind of well maybe it's classic action hero behaviour, but it just seems that he's really annoying to be around. He's. He's someone who doesn't make friends, who has no one to rely on but himself. Yeah. And as a result, he doesn't have much interest in interacting with other people. Yeah, but I think if you compared it to, say, like Mad Max. Who barely speaks at all. Who barely speaks at all, yeah. But I. I there's that minimal level of interaction, I think, with Mad Max, and that's more interesting than someone. Who still has to interact with a lot of people, mm. but I don't know. I realise I'm, I'm going on a rant about how he didn't say thank you. That's maybe not the most uh, productive uh, character. Well, um, that is another parallel with the first movie where he he meets a young woman who takes a shine to him, and he maybe takes a bit of a shine to her, and then she's very quickly killed. Mm, and okay. In the first one, she is dragged into the sewers by cannibals. Which is well, that's bad news. That's going to spoil your day. That's pretty bad. And played by Susan Hubley, who was uh, Kurt Russell's other half at the time. And uh, here it's um, uh, Taslima, played by Valeria Golina. 
And she, yeah, she has a nice little speech. She has a lovely little speech about how LA is not is sort of the only free city, mm. like Casablanca, because the rule of law there, the rule, the rule of this very um, far right, far conservative government doesn't extend there. So she says, oh, a woman can still wear a fur coat if she wants to. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and then, then once you do this, well, as, as this moment she finishes speaking, she's shot in the back. Yeah. By we never we never we never even see find out who shot her. Why it's just like some passing. You're some free, passing you're government You're free to shoot people. Yeah, because it's this lawless, yeah, anti paradise. And as as she dies, he sort of holds her. He holds her hand and sort of stays with her as she dies. And there is a moment where he's. Regretful of what happens, oh, she didn't deserve this. You know, the innocence shouldn't have to suffer. But he's not going to say it out loud. No, he's not. He's de- <laughs> yeah, he's definitely not. Um, I don't know. Again, all I got from Kurt Russell's face is, I'm really angry. I'm going to go and do some more stuff now. The ending of the first movie, once he gets the president out of Los Angeles, of uh, New York, um, he is offered anything he wants by the president and he says oh, I just want a minute of your time obviously he says it a bit more sort of from that was conversationally yeah. but um, you know a lot of people died to get you out of there and uh, I want to know what you have to say about that so he genuinely does feel concerned for other people it's just that he doesn't express it okay do you think he just needs a, like a good hug he just you know, no, he doesn't. He wouldn't like. He, that. he doesn't need a hug. He'd shoot no, he, people. Yeah. But um, before he sets off, he says, uh, "I better. You better hope that I don't make it back." And he makes good on that. That's true. That is true. I, I mean, I do quite like the little ending. I mean, it took ages. I think that's. I mean, I think that's an. That, that's another shift, maybe in the last twenty years, basically of um, of how how fast editing is now like that sort of twist took a long time to play out mm. I felt I, I mean maybe I was just tired but I just remember thinking this scene this whole this bit has been going on for what seems like 15 minutes it's not I mean it is a twist but when the twist comes so slowly and so laboriously mm. does it count as a twist anymore it's you know, I, I mean, I do it as a piece of writing. I think uh, an, an interesting little twist on things, but I just remember thinking, "Come on, end." I wouldn't say it's a twist ending because, for it to be that, it would have to make you reevaluate what you've been watching. Okay, all right. It's, it's a switch. It's a switch. Yeah, it's, it is. It is a switch, literally. Um, what I liked actually was before we got to that point when they had to land the helicopter is well better get rid of the other characters that we don't really have time to do anything yes. with so flames will just engulf them <laughs> and then that's fine two minutes back uh, you know we'll crash the helicopter that's out of the way now it's just back to Snake and the others that's fine I, you know I quite like that just, I laughed out loud when, when the flames just sort of shot him from one side and engulfed just the back part of the helicopter and set it on fire and they just kind of dealt with that and that was okay it was annoying it was annoying actually because you know gouts of flames would occasionally sort of Burst. erupt into the co- cockpit and Snake would grimace a bit and find this really annoying again it's, it's, a, it's a distraction that um, yeah, part, part of the helicopter cabin is on fire yeah he'd rather that it wasn't on fire yeah that's what he would like but, but also that someone who he's known for years is, is burning to death about two feet away well 
Yeah, I mean, they didn't really get on, it seemed. How she? On the lawn. Well, formerly Carjack Malone. Yeah. And then following a certain procedure, now Hershey, played by Pam Greer. Yeah. Which is just before Jackie Brown. So Really? Is Jackie Brown that? Jackie Brown came out the following year. Oh, my goodness. So that was quite sort of prescient. Well, not prescient casting, but it was the last time they were able to get Jackie, last time they were able to get Pam Greer. Although, funnily enough, she was actually in John Carpenter's next film, but one, Ghost of Mars. That, that is a terrible film. No, it's great. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's a different podcast, maybe. Um, it's uh, notable for being Jason Statham's first Hollywood movie. And, and also, Ghost of Mars was sort of the, the cut up and remangled, I'm going to say remangled because I don't think it's a good film, the remangled uh, workings of the kind of groundwork for Escape from Earth, which was a proposed yeah. idea uh, for the next. Uh, uh, Snake Plissken film Escape from Earth or I think Escape to Mars I mean, I mean it's just a right. working thing that didn't really get anywhere because, because Escape from Earth they flopped as far as I'm aware at least this is true that there wasn't really anywhere they could go on Earth although that in itself is a bit odd well we've done New York we've done LA that's Christ. pretty much the whole world that's the whole world so the, the idea was that he would go to Mars I don't know to rescue someone else well um, I do remember in my uh, research is that an escape from Earth was touted and it would in some way involve um, fleeing some kind of zombie apocalypse. Right. So okay. it's going to be Snake Plissken versus zombies. Which I think... That would be good. I think we would have all enjoyed. That's true, yeah. I think you would have had to have some other... I can just see in the, in the, in the breakdown in the writing room you would have to... Immediately you would have had to say well we've got to get a talkative character in here. Because we've got zombies on one side, it's Nick Bliskin on the other. This will be a largely... Having said that, Mad Max Fury Road shows that you can have a big-budget action movie with characters who don't talk much. It absolutely does. Do you think John Carpenter could pull off something like Mad Max Fury Road? I would like to say yes. I think. That but that you're going to say no? But... Fury Road has the benefit of having been in development for nearly 30 years because that, that script was written in the early 90s right? and they were working on it for a very long time so George Miller knew exactly what he wanted to do at every step Carpenter is a very different director and much more of a sparse visual stylist you watch this you watch this particularly his earlier films the ones he shot with uh, Dean Cundy as director of photography they're very stark very spartan visually whereas Fury Road was much more complex and much more detailed okay now this is completely speculative of course but if you gave John Carpenter 150 million dollars and the ability to do whatever he wants would he come up with something as good as Fury Road? Well, what's the equal of Fury Road? I mean, it's such a great movie. Um, I think that, in his case, he would come up with a way of making ten movies for fifteen million each. Which is fair. That's fair. Which, fair yeah, enough, which that's I think fair. is a very sensible thing to do because he works best on a, on a relatively tight budget. Okay. Halloween was famously made for three hundred thousand dollars. Um, the Fog 
for 1.1 million. And they escaped from LA for 50 million. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe restricting his budget is the best thing. Well, his next movie after this was Vampires with James Woods, which is a completely different movie, a complete change of pace. Yeah, I have seen that. It's, it's, I'm not tempted to see it again, to be I honest. The, th- the thing that I love about that is that it's based on a book, and it's about a group of vampire hunters in uh, the southwestern United States, out in the, in the desert states. And in the book, the main character is basically written as being Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. But in the movie, they cast James Woods, who is the least appropriate person for that role but he's perfect because he apparently improvised all his own dialogue <laughs> okay and it's James Woods as an action hero and I, it's so weird but it works I mean I, I, I remember I haven't seen it for ages I've seen it once and I can't remember when it was uh, a long time ago but I remember liking some aspects of the, the pacing I think there's a bit where they, they have a fight they drive away they get to a motel and you expect that there to be some you know the, the movie to sort of shift down in terms of its pacing yeah. and for them to recuperate and sort of deliver some exposition but immediately it just starts into another sort of wholesale slaughter scene and I remember oh, yeah. thinking well that's quite good they don't get any relief in this it just it just continues to go on um, I think that's the only thing I can really remember thinking well that was good well, that's, that's another example of great world-building, I think, in that movie, in that these, these vampire hunters, who are... I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not nice people, but they're also really awful people, because they are doing celebrities. Let's have beer and strippers. It's the, the, the most idiotic. Well, you know, I think, but, I think you're maybe being unfair in, the, in judging the lives of uh, vampire hunters. But it's, like, the most crass, like, party they have. But the, the gag is... They're employed by the Vatican. <laughs> and their boss is, is a cardinal. So oh, I, just, I just like that contrast. That, yeah, we work, yeah. For, we work for the Vatican. More strippers, more, 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 more bathtub whiskey. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, no comment. But <laughs> is that reminding you of... Uh, of my time in the, the Vatican? Vatican? <laughs> um, no, your birthday party. Of my birthday party yeah. in the Vatican. Well, they do have strippers at the Vatican. Do they? Oh yeah, paint strippers. <laughs> uh, dear. We can edit that out, right? No. Okay. Um, Quervo Jones, the leader of the resistance. Great names. Great names for these yeah. characters. He's set up as being a very charismatic rebel leader, and visually, he's obviously based on Che Guevara. Okay. Even down to the hat. Where's the charisma? I think he's a. Well, he's he's loud. He's clearly sufficiently charismatic to have persuaded all these people to follow him, and to have, on some level, brainwashed Utopia. But I would concede that it's an informed characteristic. We're told that he is. Yes. Yes. But we're never given any direct demonstration of that being the case. No. Given that he is an anti-establishment cult leader who it turns out is as bad as the establishment, would you equate him with Donald Trump? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that coming. Um, 
Would I equate him with Donald Trump? Well, he's it's kind of well. I wouldn't say like apples to apples, but there is a parallel there, and there is a line that comes back. To, a line that I think is a really clever use of dialogue in that it reflects how the two films, LA and New York, are very similar, and also the similarities in the the two governments in the film that Snake says several times the more things change the more they stay the same okay and that ultimately if Cuervo's people Cuervo and all his allies from all over the world take over the United States they will be no better true but I, I, th- I think the problem is you, or I felt the problem was I, I in, in no point did I think oh he is offering a better situation he is offering in terms of what he's yeah, saying yeah. but in terms of the character when you're watching the film it, I, I didn't get any I didn't get any sense of betrayal like oh what he, he's you know offering a poisoned apple I think it was always clear oh he's he's a baddie immediately right he's not I, I don't know maybe, I mean I mean did you feel that, that there was any well I have to try and think back to when I first saw the movie um, I think maybe I thought that oh he's a, a charismatic rebel leader who could be on the side of the good but it's rather like Che Guevara who for all the lofty ideals that the Cuban revolution may have had they did kill an awful lot of people ok and, sure sure but Cuba is not the socialist paradise that it's characterised as being no but but again I, I sort of thought yeah I just I, at, at no point did I think Oh, he's a he's a good guy, and then you'll find out that this that, you know the apple is rotten. Or, it was it was just he he's the bad guy because because he's because Snake is is now on the island, yeah. so the United States were sort of you know holding his leash in, in, in terms of the, the the virus that he's got and all that sort of stuff. But they are remote, so they're not really driving it anymore. What's driving it is the situation he finds himself in, and the situation he finds himself in immediately. Cuervo Jones is, is he's a baddie he's just he's just bad and so I, I you know when um, be, I mean I guess maybe that you have to have that because otherwise when Snake starts gunning down all of the other rebels you can't have a situation where Snake seems like the bad guy for a lot of it do you know what if you know if they were really the good guys yeah. it'd be a bit more problematic to have Snake killing them yes because then you you wouldn't be able to justify it in the sense of well he's doing what he has to do because that makes him a very selfish character so I guess you have to have the bad guys be the bad guys pretty much straight from the start true but as far as they know Snake is there as a government operative so they would be hostile towards him even if they were on the oh yeah, yeah that makes sense but just I just mean in terms of the viewer watching it in terms of how they feel about who who snake who the protagonist is right actively killing at that point I think you've got to keep it's very it's it's a very difficult thing to do to have a protagonist kill someone who doesn't deserve it but for it to somehow be okay in some yeah. sense in a greater sort of uh, sense by the end of the you know by the end of the, the story right so I, I I just what I'm saying is I I, I sort of thought like, oh he's the cartoon bad guy right from the, the get-go. 
It's because he has dolls' heads all over his car. That's how you know. Yeah, that's how you and know. And a disco ball on the back. No, that's good. That's fine. Disco oh, yeah, ball. Because you got one of those in your car. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a I just a bike. Just disco balls all over the. Just on my house. It's very mm, handy because you could just shine a tiny little torch on it, and then it's great at night. It's it's practical as well. Yeah, that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's, that's why right. everybody should have it. I think that's. But I would say plan. if you have a car with a disco ball, you're okay. Disco ball and doll's heads, or just doll's heads. Not not goody. When did doll's heads become the shorthand for creepiness? Always since the first doll was invented. <laughs> I, yeah, just forever. I can't imagine there was any time when just a doll's head on its own was not super spooky. And you it's could, only over the head. It's like a doll's leg on its own just looks like, oh, that's just discarded. Yes, like that's true. Head. But because it's got the brain and it's got the it's got the eyes. And dolls the, don't the, have brains. No, well, well, really? <laughs> sure, oh dear. Um, no, no, but it's the it's the, idea, the it's the representation of the of the head with the brain, the consciousness, the eyes that can and then the mouth and everything that you can emote with your face. Um, so if you just got that, you can you can definitely imagine that you turn around and the doll's face changes, and uh, maybe we might get off topic. <laughs> I think you know, but but essentially that's an odd design choice for his car. I mean, having a cool open top car. With a disco ball, okay, yeah. but that's a kind of cool thing of like he's driving around. He's a man of the people. He's driving around so they can see him. He can see them. Mm-hmm. He can shout out with his loudspeaker. That's a cool design choice. But somebody one day decided, right? He's also having loads of dolls' head, not just one or two, loads of them all over the place. That's a conscious decision. I'm going to go down to the shop or down to the store, you know, the prop department. I'm going to find loads of dolls' heads or. If I'm desperate, I'll get whole dolls and I'll rip their heads off and I'll <laughs> stick them to his, his car. So I thought that was odd. That's an odd bit of world building which is never referenced. And maybe that's just cool in LA. Maybe given that he dresses Utopia up like one of the strippers from the bar in Vampires, it could be symbolic of his attitude to women. Yeah, that he's just going to oh, take their heads off and put them on the. Oh, yeah. Well, they have dolls' heads, so it's okay. But yeah, I mean, there are there are lots of actual severed heads on stick as well. I mean, okay. I, I mean, he's not a very progressive chap. He's not, you know. I don't think he's going to be treating Utopia very well, even if he'd got away with everything. No, he clearly isn't. Okay, that's that's he's clearly horrible. Too. No, he's clearly horrible. I mean, I like the little clip when he's in the VR. He's hacked into the main VR database. So that's yes. basically breaking into Netflix these days, <laughs> right? He broke into Netflix. And he recorded a little thing. You only see the small clip where he just chucks a dove at her, because that's virtual reality, right? So yeah. when he walks up and then there's the dove, that dove doesn't go off screen. That must just go towards your face. Yeah. Um, turns out people like that, or Utopia does, as it was. It's like a symbol of peace and um, enlightenment and that. Kind oh of yeah, thing. he's looking more like sort of military Jesus at that point. Yeah. Um, not so much when you're actually on the island with him. There's a bit later on where he's delivering a um, ransom video and uh, he's directly addressing the president over this video mm. and um, he nukes Lynchburg. He doesn't... No, he doesn't no, he uses the EMP. No, the, um, the weapon itself, it turns out, it's, it's, just a, it's just a small control system for a string of satellites yeah. that can set off electromagnetic pulses anywhere in the world and yes. disable any electronic network belonging yes. to your enemy and as a demonstration of his power 
Cuervo sets this off over Lynchburg. Uh, not not destroying the capital, but you just switch everything dis- off. disabling it. Now that also cuts the phone line because the president's on the phone with his wife, and Cuervo knows that he's on the phone. He's sort of guessed that he's going to have phoned up, and says, "Ah, this is good, isn't that right, Mr. President?" Draw, yeah. Her daughter's, her daughter's not the same, you know. And you just hear this voice from off screen going, Hey, knock it off, Quiver. And Quiver just looks at the camera and says, yep. See? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's not... Yeah, he's not... But that's the thing. He, he doesn't really... He doesn't really form a sort of... Uh, a progressive alternative to... The, the, the president's regime, which again, no. again, feeds into the... You know, the more things stay the same, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But it means it's very hard to... Sort of, very. <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 broad, right? It's 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 um, it's quite blunt. Yeah. Humor. I don't know. Is it funny it, enough to be humor? It's 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 satire, and I think that one one thing you could say about satire is even if it's even if you're not laughing at it, it still has a point. That's yeah, but oh, I don't know. I don't, satire on the just satire that's oh, women talking, eh? Well, no, not that. It's, <laughs> it's, no, not that, obviously. But it's, it's, it's. I think just pointing out that this person is terrible, and yeah, okay, he is, yeah, he, yeah, is yeah, he is, sure. he is, as, he is as awful as the people in charge, but just in a different way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It reminds me of the episode of The Prisoner, where Number Six is brainwashed into standing for election as the new Number Two. Okay. And I don't remember that. He, my memories of the prison are very hazy. Oh, it's, it's, it's so good. Um, but he wins. It's sort of engineered that he wins. But he ends up without any power, and the and the new number two is in fact going to be the his assistant. Right. Okay. Um, and the underlying point is that it doesn't matter who wins the election because the government will always get in. Right. Okay. But at least the prisoner made a sort of such a bizarre world. Yeah. That it, it's world building again. Yeah, yeah, I get, yeah. I just in Escape from LA, I just thought, oh come on, let's get past this part. We'll get we'll get on to the next bit. Given a lot of characters all the way through both this movie and the first, know who Snake Plissken is. It did make me worry whether or not it was going to be like um, Roger Moore's James Bond. Where he travels all over the world using his real name, and everyone's heard of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's a former commando, uh, decorated war hero. Yeah, I mean, some background in Cleveland, something big happened there, and I think isn't that the background he fought in? He fought in World War Three. He fought in World War Three in Siberia. It, yeah, and um, he infiltrated Leningrad in the glider. I can't read the exact things. It's, it's discussed oh, in the first gliders. movie. Because Why? He, he flies a glider in the first movie. That's how he gets into New York and he lands on the roof of the World Trade Center. Um, but we have hang gliders later in his country. I know, I know. Do you think... And I have a big memory of Ghosts of Mars. There's, there's balloons in Ghosts of Mars. Yes. Swarthy air balloons. Are there gliders? Maybe, I mean, fair enough. Maybe John Carpenter just likes gliders. <laughs> He likes things that he likes things that fly but don't have engines. Well, you know, everyone's going to have a hobby. Yeah. Um, 
with all his uh, roots of investigation apparently foiled and having lost a lot of resources, Snake takes the opportunity to have a bit of a sit down and a think. Whereupon he meets Steve Buscemi at his weaseliest. Yes, yes, I enjoyed that. It's the most I enjoyed that. I, I mean, no one else could play that character. He is so. He's 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 the human weasel. Yeah, yeah. But but the gag is that he's in the same way that in the first movie, he had like the last New York cab driver. Yeah. Map to the Stars Eddie is the last Los Angeles talent agent. Mm. And he's he he switches sides like that. He it represents Cuervo at first. Yeah. Um, and his, his little um, <laughs> he's his baldric yeah he was a mixture of intensely annoying and also someone I wanted to be on screen all the time because he's really fun to watch yeah and I mean Steve Buscemi Steve Buscemi he's great uh, yeah uh, but I think yeah and, and he made this he took the role purely for the money as well he, t- he took it to fund his directing debut, Trees Lounge. R- rather than uh, for some great artistic rather than, challenge. Rather than say, oh, I'd love to do an Escape from New York sequel, or I thought the script was really good. Yeah, I'll just do it for the money. Yeah, but I get that if you're, if, 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 if you're Steve Buscemi and that script comes across your, your desk and you know you're going for that character, mm. you're, I, I mean, you can't be reading that and thinking this is amazing. Mm. You must. That is definitely a job you take for the money, right? But it is a really entertaining performance. No, but that's because he's good, not because and he's not. He's not half arsed yet. No, no. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that that was a uh, you know, taking it for the money. <laughs> um, it says in my notes here that it's the film is like a funhouse mirror of the first one. Um, now, g- given that you seem to be struggling to remember anything of the first movie. Would you say I, that's true? I, I think. I mean, I think so. But I, I found the, the similarities, kind of more annoying. I wanted a different. I wanted another story with Snake Plissken. All oh, right, you wanted you wanted a, another. Yeah, you wanted a, sort of another instalment of the Snake Plissken adventures. Yeah, not, I think so. Yeah, yeah, because right. because, I, yeah, I get I, I, I get what you're meaning about the. the you know, funhouse mirror idea, and shifting tone and things like that. But um, I, I just got the impression when I was watching it, I enjoyed the first kind of half hour. I was thinking because I hadn't seen it for so long when I rewatched it, and I was thinking, oh yeah, this is good. This is a proper solid B movie. I remember liking this. I remember thinking this was good. And I, as it went on, I sort of, I was having less and less fun, and I just kept thinking, more and more, this is fun for the writers or for the director or for the people making the film mm. that they've done this little thing oh isn't this funny because this shows up something about Los Angeles or, or whatever I just kept thinking this is more and more fun for the makers of the film and less and less fun for the, for the viewer right I think so you know like the first things with the, the the plastic surgery sort of grotesque nightmares I was on board at that point and then it's, just, it's Bruce Campbell yeah, and I like that, and I, you know, I thought that was funny. But and then, you know, you've got Maps the Stars Eddie, and I just thought, okay, right, that's going. And then I think by the time Pam Greer turned up, 
I was just praying for it to be over. Oh right, you really didn't like no, it. No, I, I no, that that's unfair, but I just sort of thought this is so slow and so cheap, although it wasn't cheap. That's the thing, it, it, it really fails on and the way they've spent the money. Yeah, yeah. I mean Yeah, I don't know where it went. I mean things like things like the, the stadium, yeah. I can see that being a, a big sink. Um uh, the action the, uh, the action sequence towards the end. The big the big fight in, in, yeah, in the yeah. happy kingdom. You've Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um yeah, you've got a lot of people there, a lot of extras. Yeah. A lot of costumes and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I can see it beginning to eat up the money. Um but things like so at the start where they have the cars driving past shooting at each other from about ten feet away from each other. Yeah. Um that is the slowest car chase thing gunfight ever put to film I'm sure if you watch it again they seem to be moving at about 6 miles an hour they are going very slowly they are yeah just shooting at each other from you know I could hit so I, you know I think I could I could shoot someone <laughs> from 6 feet away in a car that's moving slower than I can run speaking of the happy kingdom yeah did you recognise the location Location. Uh, no. It's a very famous location where they film that final sequence. I, I, I don't know. No, I, no. Tell me, tell me. It's Courthouse Square from Back to the Future, which is oh. not technically a location because it's part of Studio Backlot. But right. Okay. It, that lots of things have been filmed there. I mean, right. Well, the only other thing that I'm, I can think of that was shot there was Gremlins. I'm sure somebody just posted online the, the filming Agent Carter season 2 I think that's taking place there oh or maybe they just one of the members of the cast I, I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm not on Twitter so I have no idea how I came across this picture but there's a picture of one of them pointing in the courthouse and oh. pretending to be Doc Brown I have, I to be honest they could have just walked past that place and, <laughs> and done that um, that's a terrible anecdote I saw something on the internet I'm not entirely sure if it worked or not <laughs> Alright, okay. Let's just assume that I did not pay enough attention. But it's yeah, it's it's that location. It's that outdoor set. Oh okay. Um But um it's described all the way through as the Happy Kingdom. Well yeah, and, and they never say the word Disney. No, Disney would Disney would have hit the roof. Disney would have yeah. There is a bit of dialogue that says, um, is that uh, Snake says is, is that what I think it is and Eddie replies oh yeah that thing in Paris killed them yes yes and if, if Disneyland Paris had literally opened a couple of years earlier at most and it was in real trouble when it mm. opened I think what you might remember I think yeah I think it was I mean it did not start smoothly I think no it had real trouble then I think it didn't help that it was built in a swamp from what, I, from what I've heard I've never been there <laughs> of, course, of, course, of course I haven't Okay, I haven't either, I'm afraid. I've never been to uh, Disneyland in America. I'm waiting for them to build these new Star Wars lands. That's that's what you're waiting for? Yeah. Then I'm going to go to Disneyland or Disney World and I'm going to um, run around in the Death Star. All right. <laughs> I, have, I have no comment on that. But, I mean, yeah, take photos, sit back. One of the things that... Um, it's, it's Taslima 
Snake asks her what she what it was that she did to get her deported to Los Angeles, and she says she was a Muslim in North Dakota. Yeah, so they round up everybody, or they make it illegal. They make it illegal to not be Christian. Yeah, excuse me. And uh, there is a bit of dialogue towards the end where it says, oh, the United States is a no-smoking nation. No smoking, no no red meat, yeah. no, no sex unless you're married. Mm-hmm. Again, it's it's, uh, it's quite bluntly sending yeah. them up as, you know, baddies that you don't feel bad. But I think the, the, yeah. the prison governor, Malloy, is played by Stacey Keach, is a lot more reasonable than the president because the president appears to be going completely unhinged. Yeah, and yeah. Malloy does talk back to him several times. Yeah, about him losing his grip on reality. That's true. I mean, he's because I think if you had if you had a whole set of antagonists that were just cackling villains, mm. yeah, that wouldn't be as interesting. No, I mean, so they ha- so they have that contrast where you have the one who's in charge is clearly nuts, but yeah. he's the one in charge and his underling who is. He's more. He's more of a realist. Yes. Because it, uh, I think it's that his. It's his idea to get Snake in in the first place. So whereas, whereas, the president just wants to carpet bomb the island. Yes. Yes. Do you, so. Are you are you saying that? Uh, I was going to say Stacey Keach, but <laughs> do you think Stacey Keach himself? Uh, do you think he thought uh, Snake would? I don't know. Somehow defeat the president. No, I think it's more that he is more practically minded. Well, that's true. I mean, they send in another team first. Yeah. Um, which suggests a sort of more professional attitude towards things. Um, and, yeah, and Snake goes in and they, tr- they try and track him down. They find what? Because there's one um, home, home, homing yeah. thing that's still active, and Snake eventually finds him in a bar where he's being used as a dartboard. Yeah. And um, Snake asks someone. Oh, yeah! Snake asks the guy who's throwing the knives at him. So, so well, where's Quavo Jones? And you and you think that he's going to say something. So, oh, he's he's going. He's doing a, a, a drive-by on, on Maple Street. And so he says, "What do I look like? A fucking tour guide?" <laughs> yeah, he's. I mean, that guy is pretty antagonistic from the start. I mean, he offers he offers Snake a hundred quid to throw three knives at him. No, so throw three knives at a dead body. Yeah, yeah. I bet you can't get three knives in him. I mean, he's not that far away. No, and there are dead bodies all over the place. Yeah, that's true. But, um, well, I don't know, maybe a hundred bucks isn't worth anything. Maybe a maybe hundred greenbacks might not be worth anything uh, at all. It, it just seems that if this guy turns up with a massive gun, like, don't start fights, I well, would say. But the thing is, that's, that's the tricky thing, because in New York all these people were hardened criminals but in LA they're every kind of person mm. so it's hard to tell whether or not he's a really awful you know multiple murderer or anything like that or if he's just like a postman who made too much noise while putting letters in the letterbox Possibly, yeah. well I mean he then tries to throw a knife at Snake and Snake shoots him <laughs> from um, a long way away from a long way away because that's what happens if you don't cross it bring a knife to a gunfight Exactly, but but even that is not funny. That's the thing, and and the way Snake shoots him and then just turns around and immediately goes on its way. It's all. It's also not. 
it's also not stark enough to sort of show Snake as being like this cool I mean sort of Hollywood cool yeah. like no messing around type of thing it's just he sort of reaches his arm back shoots the guy keeps going you think well the baddie wasn't a like he was just annoying from the get go so you were kind of glad that he got shot and off screen but it wasn't like it wasn't like a threat to Snake not really well if it, well that's why I think it works when he's so offhand about shooting so something to deal with that's good. yeah but that's the thing I, 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 again I didn't feel the sort of humour the humour of that sort of situation landed particularly well it's that he's, he's so antagonistic and so angry and for Snake this is just it's like a little buzzing noise yeah and, start, yeah. and then swat right that's got that rib now I can do it with something else yeah yeah so Snake is drugged by Eddie and um, winds up being taken to uh, Cuervo's arena yeah and we have the basketball game yeah classic that was great no it wasn't it wasn't great was it I loved it Snake's great at basketball yeah of course he is he's great at everything I know but but again so that that's absolutely that's the clear demonstration of things where I thought the filmmakers are having fun here this is not fun for for me as, as an audience <laughs> member well I mean what I did think was interesting is the way they did I, and again it's this idea of you know how film editing has changed still quite slow but you did get you, it, it was edited in such a way that you you realised that he wasn't quite making it fast enough each time and at the end he was going to have to just lob the ball Yeah. so I didn't I, I like that but I, I sort of thought if this was a movie today that would just be you know just it would, Over. Be, it would be very very quick but if you do it more slowly then you get to ratchet tension you do but then you also have to cope with the fact and there's quite a bit of slow motion in there yeah, you also have to cope with the fact that, that, that Kurt Russell can't play basketball he made that I mean, shot he made that shot how many takes he, 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 I don't know I'm not saying I can play basketball I'm not criticising him really but I'm just saying you know the, the disadvantage of slowing things down and ratcheting up the tension is you get more time on screen to concentrate on the fact that Kurt Russell is a wee guy not doing anything particularly elegant when he's you know handling the ball in any way again I can't complain I'm not you know I'm not I've, I've been shot I haven't made the 10 points or whatever but yeah it's, it's interesting I mean it's, it's other things I mean Kurt Russell is uh, you know he's a normal bloke and Nowadays, again, because we've got this glut of sort of superhero films where everybody's sort of spent the last year in the gym, mm. and <laughs> Snake, Snake Plissken, by comparison, looks like a kind of normal guy who spends some time in the gym. But you thought he'd be taller. Yes, which is at least funny. I like that. I like that um, because it's it's the the myth that's, that's yeah. generated around him as, as a character in yeah. this world that people think that he's going to be this Superman but no he's like 5 foot 10 yeah I mean yeah again it's kind of it's a kind of obvious joke but at least about that one I, I thought that was good because they use it a lot right? yeah it gets repeated um, but yeah the basketball scene I I was yeah I wanted that to be over I I enjoy it particularly the final that final shot that he does oh, no, that's he, okay. he, does, he does throw the, he throws the ball full court nothing but net <laughs> and Kurt Russell really did make that shot on the hundredth take 
even then actually that's fine yeah you the know. fact that he could do it at all I think is yeah. it's a bit like I mean and then of course the following year it gets topped with Alien Resurrection where Alien Sig- Resurrection is the Alien Re- yeah your second is that, that. What? No, not Sigma The basketball shot. Alien Resurrection is that old? Alien Resurrection came out in 1997. Oh my goodness. I feel old now. Well, you are. Well, yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> A big long white beard. That's true. Um, but not true. with Sigourney Weaver making the, the over the shoulder shot, and it goes straight in. And apparently that was something like the third take. I wonder, I mean, do you go to actor school? And they like that's a lesson one day. They go like how to how to maintain your composure when an explosion's going off, or you've made an amazing shot that you're not going to make again. But you have to keep, you know, you don't want them to have to cut. Well, the thing is that on an, an Alien, that shot, Ron Perlman almost ruined that take because the ball goes she throws it over the shoulder, ball goes straight in. Ron Perlman looks straight at the camera and goes, "Oh my god." <laughs> and they had to that, that, it cuts really fast because they thought well, how many te- more takes are we going to need to do that again for him to not turn and talk to the camera yes yes see nowadays they would just recomposite it with him on green screen not reacting and they would just composite that in yeah well they could have done it anyway but, oh, well so, they could have done it but but they were, I think they were very keen not to have any CGI in that shot at all yeah and they, apparently they were quite annoyed Sigourney Weaver was annoyed that the borders out of frame very slightly at the, sort of the top of its arc oh, because, it looked, because it looked like it might have been cheated yeah. but it wasn't it was a real shot I, was, one, and I have a note about the costumes that what well, Utopia is dressed appallingly but some of I like her jacket though as you get to the with the Quervo Jones' face <laughs> sort of, I don't know if it is right though oh, that's, like that. that's almost like a brand though isn't it yeah, yeah. Like, like a cattle brand she's my property yeah which Maybe. is I don't know which, Maybe. well it, it fits in with his behaviour oh yes yeah yeah of course, that's, of course. That's creepy I but think. yeah I, no, I quite like that jacket <laughs> but uh, the henchman uh, I don't know what to get you for Christmas um, also Cuervo's henchmen who are sort of dressed in a wild mixture including some guys who are just like wearing lumberjack shirts yeah <laughs> I again I sort of thought I was this it, it, I don't even know the right word for it, I guess, but are they? it's not archetypes because. It's stereotypes? Not, stereotypes, even, maybe? Or, or whether they're drawing from sort of a kind of. a kind of nod and a wink to Ellie Gang culture? Maybe. But nothing specific and kind of. not, not so clear cut because it's such a mishmash. Which, in one way, you might think, well, that's quite, that's quite good. Um, but then it's not clear. It's not like the warriors or anything like that, where you have different gangs, different you know, fashions and different things like that. I so, because it would be interesting. I mean, if you did something where Quiver Jones was uniting lots of different disparate tribes. Oh yeah. Um, because there were bits where you looked across and there were loads of people with sort of black leather, and there was a sort of uh, Asian gang of some sort, mm-hmm. and they had sort of a couple of them had kind of mohawks and, and things like that, and they were kind of more greys and things like that. But they didn't. They didn't dwell on that too much, and the sort of the people fighting for Quervo were all sort of mixed. You, and on one hand, yeah, you could say, well, that's good. That's it demonstrates it subtly. But on the other hand, it also looks like a sort of mess of 
random things that the, the wardrobe might have had that day. Mm. Or they might have been told to bring their own stuff, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, there is that there is that bit earlier on earlier on where you see um, some new arrivals yes who were sort of gathered around a burning brazier all praying together yes and they look they all look absolutely terrified yeah and weirdly that's moved past quite quickly because Snake asks about them or what they are yeah. and and he's told that oh they're, they're new arrivals and that you know they're not going to matter mm. and then you just move past it so maybe maybe that didn't really fit in with the sort of well it made me think that maybe they're going to get picked off quite quickly and that's where all the final shirts come from possibly because there's a bit when they're on the when they're on shore before they move they move then you see the people getting sort of loaded on uh, to be to be shipped out to LA when Snake turns up I can't remember is it Michelle Forbes character says something like Oh, is that him? He looks like so retro, really nineties. So twentieth so century. Oh, so twentieth century. That's what it is. And then there's just the people sort of getting loaded on in a big queue, just wearing just clothes. Yeah, just wearing old like yeah. there's a guy in a suit. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's not like they made this kind of hyper futuri- yeah. futuristic thing, and snakes are sort of completely throwback. I think it's a nod to the fact that he's wearing his costume from the first movie. And yeah. I don't mean a replica. He's wearing the exact same costume that Kurt Russell had kept after they finished the first one, and still fit. Well, okay. I mean, I remember when he, like when he turns up in that. I thought, oh yeah, it's not. It's not that it's iconic, but I, I did think it's a look. It's a look. Like it hasn't dated that badly. Well, the weird black and white camouflage trousers look strange. Yeah, but it's still it's but not. It, but, it, but but they would have looked strange at the time. Yeah. So, it, so it's sort of timeless in that he always looks. Yeah. Out of time, he's never fitted in. Yeah, because because he's an outlaw. Because he is an outlaw. He's yeah. the last American outlaw. Yeah. What do you think about the proposed remake that is sort of discussed every couple of years? So, of the first one, obviously. Uh, uh, yeah. So when the rumor started up again, when I. Yeah, it was with Gerald Butler. Uh, Surely you wouldn't object to that. Um, my Hollywood doppelganger. <laughs> <laughs> I look nothing like Gerald Butler. But, the funny um, thing is that we were talking about the uh, the idea of a, a zombie-based third movie. The ideal person, I think, to play Snake Plissken in a remake now is Norman Reedus from The Walking Dead. See, I can, I can see that. I was I was actually going to ask you who you think would be doing the remake because because the because the because the, um, the Gerald Butler thing was quite a while ago now I think it was basically after three hundred and he was sort of big yeah the people thought this might be a, a driving force I mean he could play that character but John why I, <laughs> there's another question if, if the choice had to be made that would not be a terrible choice. In the same way that um, I, re- I read a review years ago for *Son of the Pink Panther*, which cast Roberto Benigni as Jacques Clouseau Jr., and the review said, "If you had to make the choice, Roberto Benigni is the perfect person to take this over. He's a natural comic. He's a natural clown. He's got this fantastically fractured English. It's perfect. The script is horrible and the movie is terrible, 
but yeah. that casting choice was dead on well yeah I mean I mean, there's there's lots of films where you think well they're I, actually a lot of the time you, you simply watch the film and you think oh they were wasted yeah you know that must have been bad for that actor or you know that, that can't have been fun or they were doing that for the money um, and there's sometimes where you get films where you think well that really that, that elevated it you know so Norman Reedus I think I don't know I mean I, I mean I, I sound fairly neutral on him because I don't watch The Walking Dead but he is a fairly um, I wouldn't even say he's just a normal looking guy but, uh, but he is he has quite a distinctive look to it it could it could just be the way he carries himself as the character as Daryl who is yeah but but part of me then thinks well get someone else maybe and just get them to act really well <laughs> is that is that a radical idea no no that's perfectly fair I mean in The Walking Dead Andrew Lincoln I mean I never really thought he, he would escape in my mind from Egg so from, it's coming from, soon escape from Egg Escape from Egg no but but you know and, but but to an American audience who haven't seen this life they only knew him as the guy who was secretly in love with Kira Knightley in Love well, Actually yeah okay um, but, but yeah but he's, he's a great I mean he's, he's great fantastic. he's great yeah um, I mean I think I think with any discussion with this I can't really get past the idea of why would you bother doing it why would you remake it at all why would you remake it at, at all money. is there enough of a fan base that it would provide more money it, I, I guess a cushion of money because because when people are making films they're investing in yeah in, it's in a business it's a business right so if you've got something with an established fan base you might be able to transform it into something good but you might but part of the consideration must be at least 100,000 people are going to go and see this so we're going to have this amount of money like worst case scenario it's it's not going to fail by more than this amount do you see what I mean yeah, it's yeah. sort of insurance so I think does Nick Pliskin have the fan base that would mean that you would do a remake of one of these films or even just uh, or like Mad Max just another film but with a different actor rather than just make a new film that's got a gruff protagonist and some slightly dystopian futuristic setting well there is a film called Lockout brilliant I mean, not Which, brilliant, but but worth seeing. Absolutely, I haven't seen it, but it's it's about a convict being sent to a prison in space to rescue the president's daughter. Yes, and some have suggested that that is actually based on the Escape from Earth script, which it can't be because there aren't enough zombies in it. There aren't any zombies in it. Well, the, the sort of the faceless or the the characterless prisoners in a lot of it. I haven't seen it. It, it is good. It is a good solid B movie. It's um, and. It seems at least that you know Guy Pierce, as the main character, is uh, you know having fun and and again it's one of these it's one of these sci-fi things. I'm pretty sure it's also uh, um, Luke Besson. Yeah, is it Europa Core? Europa. Um, I think it is. I think it is. It's it's you know it's it's kind of low budget for for what it is, and mm-hmm. um, and it, you know the action comes thick and fast and. It, it all gets resolved quite quickly it's not a long film as far as I remember it's quite short in fact um, 
and it starts with one of those bananas low budget sci- sci-fi premises of the, the best way to deal with this prisoner problem is to build a space station and put them on board that cryogenically frozen I think wow. all cryogenically of... frozen as well as being in space yeah that's, and that's like belt and braces there's no one that bad there's no person <laughs> that bad I mean even in Demolition Man they were just frozen they were just frozen or I don't know put them on an oil rig or something that would be an, that'd be an easy other oh, film that's really. face off well, they have yeah, but face off, they get that, that, weirdly with face off, they get away from that quite quickly because you think that's quite an interesting setting. Uh, escape plan. I think the the prisoners inside an oil tanker at sea. Oh, I haven't seen that one. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone together at last. Oh, is that a twist that they're in there? I think that it might be. be. I think that might be. But that's but the, I think that apparently there's more pleasure to be had in it being the first film in which Arnold Schwarzenegger speaks German on camera. Ah. Okay. <laughs> so the selling point. It's yeah, technically true, I guess. As the a selling gov- point, and the governor is played by Jim Caviezel, who is better known as Jesus. It, it so the gap in between Escape from New York and Escape from LA was that because of the makers' reluctance to do another one, or was it, it funding, it or was, what brought Kurt Russell back? Kurt Russell always wanted to do another one, but I think it was a combination of being able to get funding to do it because they needed a, a you know, they needed a decent budget finding a story concept that they liked Carpenter having Carpenter basically losing all his clout after 1986 because he and Kurt Russell don't made a number of films together as you know and they did after Escape from York they did The Thing which bombed and Big Trouble in Little China which also bombed Oh really? Okay. And that pretty much ended Carpenter's career as a studio director. Um, he made two films in the late eighties independently. In the early nineties, he did a couple of movies for well, basically sort of for hire gigs, right. and one that what another, another one actually, which I think is very underrated, called In the Mouth of Madness. I think, was I, last, I think it was his last movie before this which was um, Sam Neill's first lead role after Jurassic Park okay and it's a very weird horror movie about an insurance investigator who is hired to find an author the world's best selling horror author who's disappeared along with the manuscript for his new book which is called In the Mouth of Madness and the story ends up very strangely folding back on itself the idea of the overlap between fiction and reality um, that this this fictional horror author is part Stephen King, part H.P. Lovecraft and that the things that Lovecraft wrote about these ancient beings from before time that were coming back into our world are real right okay and they're being summoned back by all the people who read these books right the more people who read the more who believe the more real they become um, but that didn't get much for release. But is, is I mean, is it good? You think it's good? It's or? fantastic. It's a really, really good movie and really creepy, and also very. It's I mean, it's one of the most intelligent horror movies I've ever seen. Okay. The idea of not really being able to. T- I mean, it's, it's almost like not being able to tell about whether or not you're a created being until it's almost to the point. Well. 
it's almost like an argument over the existence of God right, and, okay. and nature oh, of free will to... but in the context of a horror movie right okay okay I'm gonna and Charles Nelson's in it <laughs> alright that's not a particular selling point for me I guess it's, it's one way or the other has a great has Sam Neill Jürgen Prochnow Charlton Heston and David Warner All not right. many women in there unfortunately should be more women in, in films generally but um, alright okay I'll go check it out it's, well that's the problem it's out of print oh right okay I don't actually have a copy I think it's the only copy of me I don't have a copy of because it's never been released on DVD in the UK and the VHS it's because it's real well I could uh, spoil the ending of the no, movie no, 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 and no, explain to you why that's an interesting comment for you to make but uh, no it's it's an absolutely brilliant film but you can't get hold of it it's criminal okay it's suppressing art Ed what are you going to do about it precious little I'm afraid not, not today anyway um so having retrieved the device and um, oh yeah this film yeah, yeah remember that yeah yeah okay um, having retrieved the device and um, got with uh, Utopia back over the wall back to the evil states of America yep uh, Snake pulled, manages to pull a switch with the control disc and uh, maps the stars eddies tour guide disc yeah with a little bit of red lipstick no there's a little, polish, little, so little drop of uh, nail polish yeah um, so we get to the end of the movie and it turns out that the whole thing was a trick the virus he was injected with he was given yeah was in fact um, not dangerous at all no it was it's, just a cold it was like, yeah it was a 24 hour flu yeah that's a great thing to inject into your operative before they go on a well, the worst thing that happens is he gets a bit of a cough. Yeah. Makes the basketball more impressive. Well, that's... that's you know, he was doing that with the flu. That's another thing that I really like, is where um, Cuervo is giving him this big introduction. Ah, oh, here is the, the world's most famous little snake, Bliskoon. And it cuts to Snake going... <coughs> and try, yeah, trying try to look tough while coughing. Yeah, well, he does it well. <laughs> But the ending of the movie, and this is, this is, as I said, this is the part that I really had a problem with when I first saw it, which is that they pull a, he pulls a switch that the president tries to shut down the enemy, but he wants it just playing I Love L.A. Right. Snake has the real device, and he sets off all the satellites... Mm. and he shuts down the whole world yes on the grounds that the two sides are as bad as each other and that no one can really be free while either of them are in charge right yeah okay you had a problem with that bit I had a, I had a real problem with that originally yeah the idea of, of as, as Molloy says wiping out the last 500 years of human civilization. I mean it seems quite extreme it is Although it's not a half measure. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, I like that Quiver Jones had united, as they say, all of the third world countries <laughs> Mexico, Brazil, and others. <laughs> um, also, those third world countries um, have a fleet, and Cuba as well. Uh, I've got a fleet that's off the coast of Florida, 
and it's two minutes away. So the president's plan is, so he's going to shut down Mexico. Uh, I guess news of that will reach this invading fleet in a couple of minutes uh, before they make uh, landfall. Again, in Florida, that's the major point. Um, so yeah, I I don't know where I was going with that. I've already forgotten what they. Well, I think well, it's, I, I think it's part of the ridiculousness that they are literally two minutes from landing in Miami. Yeah, so they could they could swim for it. <laughs> well, they could if that's their, I mean, intention. But but also, I, what I was thinking more was, so Quiver Jones is in charge. He's not on the fleet. Like he's not. He's not invading from there, and his gang in LA has quite a few people in it, but not very many. Mm. Uh, you get the impression that the United States police force, like that, that United States police force, um, have more people, more guns, yeah, some nice helicopters that are bulletproof, and you know, but oh, the missile missile launchers are inconvenient for them, but not the end of the world. They can still fly on for quite a wee while. Um, helicopters. Yeah, the helicopter. Are the helicopter's going to be able to fly? Oh, right. No, not if... Bef- not, oh, right, not, bef- right, before the... Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. No, okay, you're absolutely correct. So, I guess before Cuervo Jones gets to gets to America, he shuts America down first and then yes. wanders but in. Well, your point was, that leaving that aside, you, you are not optimistic that Cuervo's invasion force would have got very far. Not if their leader... Who's kind of hopeless and is surrounded by a not professional army, and they're like, that's the that's one of the focuses of things. Although, although I guess you could argue, not really. It's just that Utopia was delivering the package in LA, and that's just how that had to go down. Yeah. And it's so important, Quervo had to be there himself. Although, why then drive around in your, I don't know if it is a Cadillac, but your open top car, mm. uh, making proclamations? So something doesn't work there. Uh, and then you've got your invasion force landing in Florida. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure that that's. I mean, don't ignore it, but I'm not entirely sure it's a huge worry for the United States unless the but United they, States. Had, but he's got the. He's got the remote. No, but what if he has the remote? Then it's then it's a whole different thing. But did he find out that this weapons program has been developed? or not even just developed, working, because they had to put the satellites up into orbit, and convince Utopia to steal it, arrange for Utopia to go to LA. He knew he had to be in LA, he's not from LA, he's just in LA. Quova. Yeah. I assume that he was there for a while, that he, that maybe he had actually been deported there. So is the reason he's there perhaps that that's such a convenient, close location to mainland USA? Maybe, yeah. Okay, I, I mean, I thought it was a, a maybe a bit like you hear about sometimes um, criminal gangland leaders who continue to run the criminal empires from jail. Yeah, okay, okay, but if you've united all of the third world countries, can they not send? Like, why is LA not packed with troops? Like, not not gang members, but because they've still got they've still got the um, the. U.S. police on that doorstep. Yeah, but they're, they're on an island, right? Yeah. Can you not sneak into LA either? Well, I presume not. 
I think this military strategy is problematic is what I'm trying to yeah, get across. I, I think that, maybe the fact that the fact that we're finding so many threads to pull out. Yeah. I mean it seems like if they had three of those bulletproof helicopters, they could have just flown there, shot everybody. Well that's the president's plan. He well he wants to come, come on his bottom. side in that he's quite sensible. He isn't though. No he's not. <laughs> But in that respect, he seems... What I like, actually, do you know what I like the best is when the helicopter lands and the pilots get dragged out and they're really surprised. <laughs> There's a, one of them in particular is kind of like, oh, what's going on? Like, what, what do you think was going to happen? Exactly, exactly. You know, but they're not, like, resigned to it. They're just, oh, my goodness, this is inconvenient. We don't see what happens to them either. Only good things, I would imagine. I think they live Well, they are in Disneyland. I think they live a long and happy life. They're go. not in Disneyland. They're... In a different. Oh, did you like where um, to get to get into the onto the island at the beginning? Snake fly, flies. What he kind of does? He drives a um, one-man submarine. Yep, with nuclear power. With nuclear power, and he flies past Universal Studios and is almost eaten by Jaws. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That was good. He was almost um, as realistic as the original shark. I like the uh, the sort of you know nuclear power to seventy five percent. Now I'm going to go faster. <laughs> Don't, it's overheating. It's like shut up. I'm going to go faster. I like that. Um, I mean, there's a bit where they talk about the the uh, the hologram projector thing that has a mini nuclear battery in yeah. it. It's only good for eight minutes. Yeah, I thought that was <laughs> now that should last a lot longer than that. Or why is it nuclear powered? Because everything's nuclear powered. It's <laughs> yeah, the future. I know, but then why not nuclear? Well, Fallout, for one thing. Yeah, but you but can make mini nuclear. Bu- oh, well, okay, right. I don't know. I think again, the technology is not developed in a. I think. Well, it's, you have to think about why it is that Malloy doesn't want to have um, LA carpet bombed. Maybe, uh, I, mean, maybe I, I, assumed it, I assumed it was just out of a basic respect for human life. Well, I wonder, you know, maybe, like, I mean, the, the, the policies themselves might be insane, but it might be that, uh, you know, they've got, like, a really strong Senate or something like that who are saying, well, I mean, you could definitely deport people to LA, but there's no way they, they're still prisoners and therefore they have. Well, no, they don't. They've lost their citizenship rights. Yeah. Uh, it's Guantanamo. Yeah, that's, that's the whole thing. Yeah, I'm just... Yeah, the more I think about it, the more problematic this seems, this whole setup. But I think there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting detail there, and there's, it's really trying to take this fairly straightforward story, mm-hmm. but at the same time take this whole satirical look at America, like this sort of cartoon version of Los Angeles, but also the political establishment and the way the way they think about prisons and the way they think about undesirable people yeah I just that aspect of it never really landed it was either too blunt kind of too obvious or, or just or not funny enough I didn't you know I didn't laugh at the things I was probably supposed to laugh at and I laughed at other things that were mainly because it's an older film and some things were somewhat ridiculous the president does say before he tries to set off the um, the weapon against the third world countries that this is the final solution. Yeah, again, so it's yeah, it's really 
getting a bit obvious by that point. By that point, yeah. I mean, I mean, you're right. It's it. It also doesn't really work. I don't think that works as a as as even sa- it, as a line of dialogue. No, it doesn't. Because it, it, I mean, it, the point is obvious, but it should feel like this is a set. This is, is a reasonable thing to say in context. But but because of where we are in the real world, the phrase "the final solution." It's already can, it's already loaded with another meaning. Yes, of course. So. So I think that I I think that doesn't work because it's not like it doesn't make you it's it doesn't make you think about the Holocaust overall. Looking at the film as a whole, would you recommend it? Do you think? Uh, yes, I think so. I think so because I think. Well, it depends. I mean, it depends to to what audience, but I think. Um, I think it's worth seeing films where they don't necessarily have access to such a huge amount of CG work, visual effects, that sort of stuff. Like if you're if you're interested in action movies, then it's worth seeing older action films to see what they did when they couldn't just generate a three D world very easily or well. Yeah, perhaps or um, well. Oh dear. Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't get people to go out of the way to see it. Although, if you if you watched it something like, um, you know, if you watched it at a movie night where you got a bunch of fans along that that knew about it and weren't going to sort of, I can imagine it being a good crowd atmosphere sort of film or a good sit down with some you know, beer, sit down with some popcorn, like and enjoy yourself. You don't have to. You're not going to struggle to follow the plot of the film. So it's good. I mean, it's good in that sort of sense. It's uh, it's it is enjoyable. And if you find the sort of slightly schlocky bits or the kind of the bits that don't quite work, if you're if you're of a mood to find them fun rather than annoying, then yeah, it becomes a it becomes an entertaining piece of work. And if you've seen Escape from LA, uh, Escape from New York, a big one. Uh, then yeah, see it anyway. Yeah, I think it's very much worth seeing if uh, if you've already seen Escape from New York and you enjoyed Escape from New York. Yes, yes. I mean, it's not as good as Escape from New York. No. And it's not also to be held up as a great action film, even I think for its time. No, I think that's fair. But I think it's sufficiently interesting and sufficiently ambitious on its own merits is it ambitious do you think yes um, okay <laughs> alright I, I, mean, I think it's clearly ambitious I mean it's I mean it's a retread of the same story it is the same thing but it's looking at it in a different way it's got that that different energy to it and that that funhouse mirror style where it's saying what if we do it in a sort of a more energetic dynamic colourful way rather than that Moody Spartan style. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I I see that. But it's it's like it's like when a film gets remade and they have an option either to just copy the original or to look at the material in a completely different way. It's. I mean, it's a preferable trend to what we have at the moment when we're recreating lots of things and 
they have to go for PG-13 in America. Oh, yeah. Because they can't make the money back any other way. So you're taking uh, some horror film or you're taking some sort of kind of harder rated action film and you have to make it accessible for 15 year olds in a, in a legal way rather than just sneaking yeah. into the cinema yeah. as, as is the long tradition Thank you to Ed Bloomer for making the time to participate in Cinema Limbo If you have any questions or comments about this episode feel free to contact us at cinema underscore limbo via Twitter or if you have any messages for me personally it's at j underscore j underscore phillips with two L's However, until next time, remember, you'd better hope I don't make it back. All of you. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com. (laughs) 